Okay, please turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 5. We'll be reading verse 12, then skip down to 18 through 21. Please follow along as I read. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. For sin indeed, wait, go down to 18. Therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation of all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came into to increase trespass, but where the sin increased, grace abound all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now you may be seated. Pray with me and for me. Father, may the words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart, bring glory and honor to you. May your word proceed forth to encourage, to challenge, and convict your people, all according to your purposes. We ask this in Christ's name. History. There's an entire channel dedicated to studying history. I'm sure there's a bunch of history buffs out here. Whether it's general history, whether it's American history, Civil War history, a lot of the history channel seems to be dealing with different war history, American Civil War, American Revolutionary War, things like that. World War II, World War I. They say that those who don't learn from history are doomed to repeat it. Often we say we long for the good old days, but the good old days are history. We don't want to live in the past, but we don't necessarily like change either. But we want to learn from history, and the rich history of Grace Hill Church goes back farther than any of us can remember. How many of us remember 1871, the Great Peshtigo Fire? You don't even know about that it was considerably worse than the famous Great Chicago Fire. How many of you remember the Civil War, 1861? This is an election year, 2024. The Republican Party was founded in 1854. Grace Hill Church goes back farther than that. Before there was even a railroad, which first came to Wisconsin in 1851. Who even uses railroads anymore? We get annoyed when we're traveling and we see the crossing. We don't hardly think of it anymore. Before Wisconsin became a state in 1848, the history of Grace Hill Church goes back all the way to 1843, more than 180 years ago. Nine individuals came to Wisconsin to plant a church right here in the village of Merton. At that time, the village was called Warren, Warren, Wisconsin. We don't know the names of those nine people. If we did a little digging, we might be able to find out. But we don't know where they lived. Chances are their buildings don't stand. We have no idea where they worked, probably farming, but we're not sure. 
We know very little about those nine people, but we do know is what mattered most to them is still standing and still active and still making history. That is this church. Those nine individuals wanted to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ and see the people of Warren, now Merton, repent and be saved, all for the glory of God. No one likes change. However, I'm sure we're glad that it's not 1843 and we had to, to stoke a fire with wood and live by candlelight and not be able to read our Bibles. So while change can be difficult, many changes have happened over the time of 180 years. Three different name changes, two different buildings, a lot of other changes. But one thing has remained a consistent theme throughout the history of Grace Hill Church, and that is the commitment to preserve and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we are grateful for how God has enabled his people to stay faithful to that gospel in the past. As Grace Hill moves forward, we want to pause and reflect on our past. Not only our past as a local church, not only on the 180 years of God's faithfulness to generations of Christians living right here in Merton, but we want to look beyond Merton and reflect on God's faithfulness and great kindness to preserve his universal church. Over 500 years ago with the Reformation, when God brought the Bible back into the hands of his people, and we can go further back, more than 2,000 years ago, when God faithfully resurrected his son and Jesus ascended to glory, we want to carefully consider our past as we position ourselves for the future. And that is why, as was said earlier, the first three months of this year, 2024, we will be working through statements from the Apostles' Creed, looking to the scriptures to learn how these beliefs took shape and how they continue to this day to inform how men and women worship as Christ's church, not just here, but throughout the world. For those of you unfamiliar with the term creed as the Apostles' Creed, it simply comes from the Latin word credo, meaning I believe. Everybody has a belief of some type. We all believe in something. And any church or group of people that gathers to worship has a belief. And it's not a matter of whether or not you have a belief or a creed or a confession. The question is, are they the right beliefs? Is it the right confession? Is it the right creed? The author and theologian of the Southern Baptist Convention, Al Mohler, said, while all Christians believe more than what is contained in the Apostles' Creed, none can believe less. All Christians believe more than what is contained in the Apostles' Creed, but none can believe less. Confessing the Creed together is countercultural, especially in America. When we recite the Creed, we are not just expressing our own views, our own priorities. We set aside the individual I to become part of a unified, singular, one body of Christ, I. We join our voices 
to the beautiful community of voices that call out across the centuries and across the oceans from every tribe, tongue, and nation. We find ourselves part of that community that transcends time, space, and place. The Apostles' Creed is the oldest creed of the church outside of the Bible. And there's many creeds in the Bible. It was not written by the Apostles, of course, but like all good confessions, the Apostles' Creed was written partially in a response to heretical teaching. Thus, creeds are relevant in guarding against false teaching. We need a standard for recognizing true Christianity and rejecting false doctrines. Creeds summarize the faith. No creed or statement of faith is ever meant to replace Scripture. However, creeds connect us to the faith of our fathers, our fathers throughout history. And with them, we speak with one voice throughout time, declaring the irrefutable truths of Scripture. As Christians, we believe the exact same thing the apostles believed. What Christian men and women, Christian men and women have always believed through time. No one likes tags, no one likes labels, but we all use them for ease sometimes. It just makes sense. And the Apostles' Creed is just like that. We can boil down the gospel to a few short lines in the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed, or every time we share the gospel with someone, we can sit down and read Genesis 1 all the way through the end of Revelation. That's rather time-consuming. And I guess all of you have shortened things at times. Have any of you shared the gospel using Romans, the Romans Road? I'm guessing you didn't read chapters 1 through 16 as you were sharing over a cup of coffee. What about a few years ago, there was a thing called evangelism explosion. People shared the gospel in bits and pieces. You ever use the four spiritual laws? You, you narrowed it down to what are the, the important parts. And by looking at the Apostles' Creed, that's all we're doing. We're looking at the bullet points, if you will. What are the essential truths? What are the non-negotiable gospel truths? Often people talk about the gospel and we think we know what they mean. We all have what we would consider non-negotiables when it comes to the gospel. So far as we've looked at the creed, we have seen, I believe in God the Father Almighty. We've seen that God is real, and that he's a father, he's personal, and that he's almighty, he's magnificent. We've seen that he's the creator of heaven and earth, not just a creator, he's the uncreated creator, and a unique creator. And because of sin, and we've been destroyed by it, he recreates us. Last week, we saw that we believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. Jesus is Christ, which means Messiah, which means anointed one. He is God. He is the son of God. And he is Lord, which means he has a right to demand certain things of us. But there are many more non-negotiables when it comes to the gospel. How many of you can remember all the way back to 2006? There was a film called The Da Vinci Code. I know it raises a lot of issues. I understand. I was fortunate enough to get to see in person Dr. Daryl Bach, a scholar's scholar from Dallas Theological Seminary. 
Dr. Bach is an expert in New Testament languages, a research professor of New Testament, and one of the few people in the world that is considered a Lucan scholar. That means an expert in the Gospel of Luke. As Dr. Bach went to talk about this film, he broke it down into bite-sized pieces. I guess I should start by saying Dr. Bach is a solid believer, and he is unwavering in his commitment to sola scriptura and his commitment to the inerrancy of scripture. There is no question about that. But for an exercise, he wanted us to look at what are absolute non-negotiables of the Christian faith. For instance, in the movie, if you've seen it, part of the storyline is Jesus was wed to Mary Magdalene. And Bach asked us, his audience, if Jesus had gotten married, would that affect the gospel? Now I understand for a lot of us, myself included, that affects the veracity of the Bible and a lot of other things. But Dr. Bach said, just for a New York minute, let's think this through. If we assume that Jesus was a devout, pious Jewish man and was chaste until his wedding night, would that affect the gospel? He wouldn't have sinned. No, it, it really wouldn't. What if Jesus had never walked on the Sea of Galilee? Does that affect the gospel? What if he never fed the 5,000? What if he didn't lay, raise Lazarus? What if he never healed Malchus's ear? If Jesus had never done any of those things, that really, I understand it would affect the doctrine of Scripture. That I, I'm asking you to, to look at non-negotiables for a second. Those things really wouldn't affect the gospel. However, this very next part of the creed is vital, and it is absolutely crucial, and it is a non-negotiable. And that is conceived of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. This phrase, this doctrine, is absolutely non-negotiable. And that's one of the reasons it's in the Apostles' Creed. My dear brothers and sisters, the gospel of Christ Jesus, the gospel of grace and peace, rests or falls on this truth as much as it rests or falls on the resurrection. Three points. Jesus was the perfect man. Jesus was sinless in both action and his very nature. And Jesus was the perfect sacrifice. To reject the virgin birth does not just deny the truthfulness of the Bible or question the doctrine of the preservation of God's word. It strikes at the very heart of the good news, the very heart of the gospel. Point one, Jesus was the perfect God-man. I realize it's the end of January. Christmas wasn't all that long ago. I would like you to turn to Matthew chapter 1, please. I'm going to read familiar Christmas passages as we talk about the virgin birth. Matthew chapter 1, starting in verse 18, something we hear almost every year in December. Matthew 1, starting at verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. 
But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, and he will save his people from their sins. All of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. I want you to take great note at the end of verse 20 all the way through verse 23. That which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. For he will save his people from their sins. His name is Emmanuel, which means God with us. Jesus did not have an earthly father. He had an earthly mother, but he did not have an earthly father. Jesus will be called God with us. God with us. And then mercy and grace pour, pour forth. He will save his people from their sins. God was Jesus' father, which is why it is right to say, Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus came with a purpose. Jesus had a mission. That purpose in that mission was to save his people from their sins. Let's look at another popular Christmas passage. Turn with me, if you would, to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, starting at verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at this saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. For you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great. And he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I'm a virgin? And the angel said, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Three times in that short passage, Luke mentions virgin. Luke is going out of his way to emphasize that Jesus had an earthly mom but he did not have an earthly dad. Again, we see that it is the Holy Spirit that comes upon Mary, and it is the power of the Most High that overshadows her. Therefore, the child will be called Holy, the Son of God. Yes, it is true that early on in the history of the church, 
Mary was given the title Mother of God. However, unlike today, the statement Mother of God was to explain the child. It was to stress that Jesus was God. It was never meant to exalt Mary. It was to accentuate, to underscore, to underline, to drive the point home that Jesus was divine. Jesus was God without an earthly father. But changes over the centuries have placed the emphasis on the Mary part and downplayed the God part. And the world has got all turned crazy-like. The point of the early historical church was to put an emphasis on the mother of God. But today, the emphasis seems to be mother of God. When we started this venture into the creed, we saw God. God the Father Almighty. Then we saw God. God the Son, our Lord. And now we briefly are introduced to God. God the Holy Spirit. The Trinity. We will look at God the Holy Spirit more in a few weeks. But today, we just want to, for a moment... See how the triune God is active in redemption. He is not passive. Everybody knows the famous verse, John 3, 16. Well, right after that is uh, 17, for those of you that don't know your math. And 17 says, God sent his son into the world. If that means son, then it must mean God the Father is the one who sent God the Son. And in both Matthew and in Luke, when we read, we see that it was God, the Holy Spirit, that came upon and overshadowed Mary. Yahweh, the Lord, is active in his creation. He is working his plans and his purposes for his glory. But I can hear you saying, Casper, you said the virgin birth is just as vital as the resurrection. How is that possible? Isn't the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, isn't that what provides salvation for God's people? How can the virgin birth be just as important as that? Let's look at what Tony read earlier. Please turn to Romans chapter 5. First he read just verse 12. Romans chapter 5 verse 12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin... So death spread to all men because all sinned. If sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and that spread to all men, then somehow that line needed to be broken, right? Who was that one man that brought sin into the world? It was Adam. And how was that sin spread to all men? Through the line of Adam, through the Father. Therefore, Jesus couldn't come from the line of Adam. If he was from the line of Adam, he would have a sin nature, and he could not be our sinless Savior. Point one was Jesus was the perfect God-man. Point two, Jesus was sinless, both in his actions and in his very nature. Look to the rest of what Tony uh, read earlier, verses, Romans 5, verses 18 and 19. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by 
the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. How can righteousness come from one with a sin nature? The one trespass that led to condemnation was Adam's sin. The one man's disobedience was Adam. As Adam represented all of humanity in the garden, we therefore inherit the sin of Adam. Excuse me. We don't have time to fully develop the doctrine of original sin. In essence, because of Adam's sin, and as a representative of all humanity, some use the term federal headship, his sin is passed on to us through our fathers, through the line of Adam. And that sin, while it did originate with Adam, when the theologians talk about original sin, they go back to a very distinct very rigid definition of the word original, and they usually mean your origin, your core, your very being is sinful from the very beginning. The very origin of you is sinful and tainted, and that's because of Adam. But that didn't affect Jesus, because he wasn't in the line of Adam. His father was God. And as such, he didn't have a sinful nature. He had a human female mother, but God was his father. And that's why Paul could write in 1 Corinthians, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. There it is. He did not know sin. But the Father made him to be sin so that we could be righteous. That, my dear brothers and sisters, is astounding. The Holy Spirit came upon the Virgin Mary, and the power of the Most High overshadowed her, just so her Son, our Lord, would not be tainted with the sin of humanity that is passed down through Adam and all men and women. This was done so Jesus would be completely pure, completely holy, and completely sinless. Sinless until a time when the Father would pour our sin on Jesus, made him to be sin who knew no sin. Okay, why? If it was so important for Jesus to be sinless, then why make him sin, as 1 Corinthians 5 says? So we might become the righteousness of God. That's the great exchange, my dear friends. The sinless Jesus took my sin, took your sin, took our sin, and gave us his righteousness. Point one, Jesus was the perfect God-man. Point two, Jesus was sinless in both action and his very nature. Point three, because of that, Jesus was the perfect sacrifice. Here are a bunch of verses real quick. Mark 10.45. Mark 10.45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Hebrews 9.28. Hebrews 9.28. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many. 1 John 4.10. 
1 John 4, 10. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. No one, no one uses a dirty, filthy, stained cloth or rag to clean something. It won't get clean. And the one that has tainted and stained with sin can't even pay for their own or atone for their own sin, let alone the sins of others. But Jesus, being completely sinless, didn't have to pay for his own sin. He was without sin, completely without sin. Yet the Father put all of the sins of God's people upon Jesus when he was on the cross. When we think of the torture, we think of the beatings, the scourging, the nails, the thorns, the, the yanking out of the beard, we think how awful, horrific, how painful, and we're right to think so. But the greatest pain that Jesus felt, the deepest hurt, was when my sin, when my disobedience, when your sin, when our sin was thrust upon Jesus by his very own Father. A man that had never known what it was like to sin. A man that had no idea what it was like to disobey. He never even knew what it was like to feel the slightest amount of guilt for having done something wrong or the slightest amount of guilt for even thinking something wrong. Suddenly had all of my wrongs, all of your wrongs, all of my sins, all of your sins forced upon him by his loving father. But then, because the father can't look at sin unveiled, turned his back on his own son. And that's when Jesus cried out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Could that be what the songwriter meant when they penned the words, I will never know how much it cost to see my sin upon that cross? Jesus was our perfect sacrifice. He paid a debt he did not owe so we could become the righteousness of God. Jesus could never have done that if he had Adam's sinful nature. I again quote from Dr. Al Mohler. First, the virgin birth affirms the true identity of Christ and truly God and truly man. Second, the virgin birth certainly points to the miracle by which this child is conceived without sin. Third, the virgin birth accentuates the miraculous nature of God's redemption. Dear brothers and sisters, the virgin birth is an essential doctrine of the Christian faith. It is non-negotiable. Because of our wicked, sinful nature, through Adam, we need Jesus, 
the perfect God-man. We need Jesus who was sinless, not only in his action, but in his very nature. We need Jesus to be our perfect sacrifice. Father, we are overwhelmed when we think of that. We, we think of Jesus, you, you stepped out of glory and took on the nature of man in all ways except without sin. But then you were without sin, but then our sin was put on you. How do we comprehend that? How do we thank you for that? Enable us, Father, to live more fully for you. Enable us to get a grasp of what it means to honor you as you deserve. We ask this for the sake of your Son who died for our sake. Amen. Please stand.